Uh, I, you know, there's an a, a opening to Charles Dickens' uh, A Tale of Two Cities. Anybody know how it goes? Anybody? I hear it a little bit, right? I came across it. I knew the opening sentence, but I didn't know the paragraph. Can I read you the paragraph? It says, it was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, but it was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. So opens a tale of two cities. So goes most of our lives. Mine and yours on any given day, on any given hour, right? It can be the worst of times. And then a few minutes later, it could be the worst of times. This week was like that for me and my family. Uh, on Wednesday, Joan and I had uh, a 18-hour getaway planned to go to New York City together. We had had this plan for months. We had bought the Broadway tickets, the hotel. I even reserved the parking spot through Spot Hero. I mean, it was laid out, man. It was going to be great. And it was until we got the call um, from our son Caleb saying that he had taken a fall while he was skiing. Now, Caleb doesn't really ski, so it's not surprising that he would fall. Um, and he's also somewhat athletic and cocky, and he's watching right now. Hey, K-Man. And uh, so Caleb decided uh, he was going to go off a jump, which surprisingly didn't work out all that well for him. And uh, he, he landed and, according to the doctors, ripped his spleen in half, um, which, uh, you know, he was trying to be a tough guy about it, be a man about it. He got up and skied with it for the next two hours. Um, until at some point where he started to realize he thought he was going to die and uh, went to see somebody and they got an ambulance who then got paramedics and all the rest. And Joan and I got called and went to the hospital. Um, his, his, he lost two pints of blood in his, in his you know, innards. Uh, when we sent out an all-church prayer request, uh, it was starting to get a little dicey. And so um, we sent, would you guys pray for him that the bleeding would stop and you know, it's crazy, but about an hour or two after we sent the prayer request, the bleeding stopped. So, uh, pretty cool thing. So that was, I'll tell you, it was very exciting for, that was exciting for Joan and I, and I think the care and concern that all of you had for my family, um, just, I mean, we were overwhelmed with you guys reaching out to us, uh, tried our best to get back to as many people as possible. I was trying to swap back texts as fast as I could at one point, even though I was trying. I had 68 unopened texts. And uh, so if I didn't get back to you, I want you to know I love and appreciate you. Uh, but we got a little got overwhelmed at the end. But Caleb is doing better this morning. He uh, is out of ICU. He's in a hospital bed and should get released in the coming few days. And we'll have to figure out school and all the rest so you can pray about that for us. But, but he is on his way to recovery. And so it was the best of times again. Until we got a call from my sister, Melissa, who told us that a friend of ours, a guy named Dave, uh, who was a guy our age with two kids, four weeks ago, he found out that he had lung cancer. And the same night, Caleb was in the hospital in ICU. Uh, Dave was in the hospital in ICU down the street. He coded five times and eventually died. 
and it was the worst of times. See, I could go on with stories like that, but so could you. I mean, we could trade these tales back and forth, right? If you live long enough, this becomes our story. We each live these lives that seem to swing so dramatically, like one day you're driving home from work and you're, you know, I've done it. I'm thinking, man, isn't life wonderful? And I've got pictures of Jimmy Stewart, right, dancing in my head. And then by the end of the night, I'm like, you know, life is essentially a nightmare on Elm Street and you just got to grit your teeth and, and bear through it. You ever wondered in these moments, why is this the way things are? I mean, why? What is going on? What is happening? Why is it happening? Maybe even on hard days, you've asked the real question of like, what's the point? And so, welcome to Origins. This is my attempt to make a little bit of sense of it all for me, for you. Also telling you about Caleb to try to make a little bit of attempt to get some mercy over a sermon that hasn't had as much work done on it as they usually do. But I'm trying to bring some framework uh, to our common joys and our common sorrows to try to figure out why things are the way they are, to understand God a little bit more, to understand you a little bit more, to understand me a little bit more. All of us have these destinies, these destinations we want to reach in this life and in, in the life to come. And I guess an underlying premise for me is it's a lot easier to get where it is you want to go if you know where it is from whence you've come. So uh, the thought over these next bunch of weeks is kind of look, looking back at, at who we are, where we came from, try to figure out why it is we do what we do, why it is he does, she does, what it is he does and she, she does. <laughs> And to do that, obviously, we're going to look into the scriptures. The Bible is not, you know, some of you might be new to church. Um, by the way, I mean, I was going to say, like, look how much room you have, but it's really only these people in the front that have all that room. The rest of you are still jammed in. But, uh, um, the Bible, if you're new, and one of the goals of our church is to, to try to reach people in the community and explain God's word in a way that would help them relate to him, to find him, to know him, to believe him. And so maybe you were taught about the Bible. Uh, the Bible is, is not a book. The Bible is literally a library of, a collection of books and letters and writings written by about 40 or so authors roughly over a period of about 1,500 years on three separate continents. But the Bible speaks to this eternal request of trying to make sense of it all. And it has, uh, it contains, you know, and, and I guess rightfully so, the first book is this book of origins. Why are things the way they are? It's a book called Genesis. And it starts like this. In the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters in the beginning. See, in the beginning, it's hard to conceive, but in the beginning, there was no man, no earth, no sun, no moon, no stars, no galaxies, no universes. There was nothing we know. 
There's no smell of home. There's no cry of children. In the beginning, there was nothing familiar. There was no day, no night, no seasons, no years, no time. There was God. Standing kind of complete, whole, perfect, outside of the boundaries of any creation or even time itself. And for some reason, the theologians still debate it, for some reason, God makes a choice to create our stories. And that, now you know some of the story. With the, with the very power of only his words, and words have power. Okay, I know you might hear that, and you might go, boy, the power of his words, I'm not sure I buy into it. Words have power. I remember as a little kid, you know, I, I, uh, you know, scrawny kid, big head, every once in a while, you know, come home, and somebody said something that hurt my feelings. And I remember my grandmother saying to me, Johnny, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. What a horrible lie that was to tell to a child. They hurt like heck. See, words have power, but no words have ever been spoken that had more power than these. Let there be light. And into the darkness broke the dawn. And God, through the power of his word, and make no mistake about it, in the story of God, his words have great power. Through the power, power of word, creation explodes. Some of you are familiar with the order, first light, then sky, and then evening, and then morning, then land, water, plants and seeds, suns and stars, and then, and then life. There's, there's water life, and then earth life, and then animals, all coming forth from the power of the words of God. Now, you have to admit, you have to acknowledge, and maybe even stand in awe of the fact that these statements, which originated around campfires, were handed down for generations and written down several thousand years ago, essentially lay out in correct order the creative order that most science would acknowledge today is true. See, these words of God, they have power, and there's power in these truths. If we could understand these truths, maybe we could understand ourselves and our destinies and our plight a little bit better. And God, day after day, looks at what he's done. He stands back and he goes, it's pretty good. I mean, that's what I would do if I had kind of laid my eyes on the situation. I'd step back and go, you know, this is pretty good. But then day six, right? I mean, I only read up to day five. But then day six, see, day, day six is different. Day six is different than any other day. Because then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Stop. Can't get into it. Told around campfires, written thousands of years ago. Here is the first references to a triune God, a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, living in community. Long before Jesus shows up on the scene, thousands of years, there is this revelation of this three-in-one God. God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they might rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock, over all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so there you have, in the book of Origins, chapter 1, the first time we see it. You know what's there? 
purpose. You and I were created for purpose. To be with the word in, in Hebrew is icons, to be image bearers. We were unlike anything else in all of creation. We were created, unlike all of the other living creatures, we were created in the image of God to bear the image of God, to show the created world what the creator looks like. That's what we were created to be and do. To look like God and reflect God. To rule over creation, to tend to it, to steward it, all the while reflecting back to it what its maker was like. And God goes on. Scripture says that he blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Just listen to the goodness of God and what he is giving, the freedom, the prosperity, the joy, the blessing. He's pouring it all out on man. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth. I Let me repeat that one more time. I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They are yours for food. And all of the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food, and it was so. Imagine what he's done, what he's given. It wasn't just so. In fact, every other day, day one through five was good, but the story, our story concludes this way. God steps back and he says, the scripture says, God saw all that he made, and when he made you, he said... This is really good. This is very, very good. Purpose. You're not a cosmic accident. You're not a ball of goo. You were created in the image of God to reflect the image of God. He's the writer of our story. It seems like he wants us because this is always under attack. He wants us to know more about this concept of image-bearing. So actually, in the second chapter of Genesis 2, the second chapter of this book of origins, he gives more detail about our beginnings. He says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground. So see, this is actually kind of interesting. If anybody says you are a, a pile of goo or mass, that is not true. However, if you've ever been called a dirtbag, it turns out that that might actually be biblically accurate. The Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the very breath of life. No other animals. A man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man, you, just, you can see him fashioning this, preparing the garden, and there he put the man he had formed. And you have purpose, and purpose, and more purpose. The scripture says the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. Why? For purpose. To work it and to take care of it. And to work it with God's presence, with God's guidance, with God's help. I love this. Now, the, the scripture goes on. It says, The Lord God formed out of the ground all the wild animals, all the birds in the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, 
That was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all of the wild animals. It was a big job, right? Like, don't you think God could have done a better job naming animals? I mean, Adam came up with platypus, you know? There's an old joke about, like, towards the end, he was running out of names, and God brings this kind of four, four-legged creature to him, and Adam's like, well, I got nothing left. He's like, uh, what's uh, God spelled backwards? Dog. Um, God, God was perfectly capable of doing this and probably doing a better job of it. I mean, it was a big job. It was such a big job that it turns out it was not a one-man job. And so the Lord said, you know, it's not really good for him to be alone. I'm going to make a helper suitable for him. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of the man. And here, I, I mean, here you have marriage, and here you have two becoming one, and unity, and purpose, all of it coming together in the first two chapters of our or origin. This is why a man's purpose again. This is why a man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife. They become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. From the very beginning, it seems like God has been for some reason, looking for partners, looking for followers, looking for maybe what the New Testament later would go on to call disciples, to help him make the world into the kind of place that he wanted it to be. You were created to be the image bearer of God with lofty responsibilities, meaningful labor, Working, working with God, for God, to make the world the kind of place, to show the world the kind of God that he is. This is why, if you sit at your desk from 9 to 5, you go, there's got to be more than this. This can't be what I was put here for. Because there was, in the original creation, the reason you feel that way is because it's true. I mean, if you think about it, right, your spirit doesn't ache for things that don't exist. The fact that sometimes you get thirsty is an indication that there's something available to quench that thirst. There's water. The reason you get hungry is because you have a desire for food. The reason that ma many of us go through life and go, there's got to be more than this, is because there, was, there is. And it was meant to be that way. And this is our story. You wonder why work is so unfulfilling. That's why. I mean, what if it could be so much more? What if it could be redeemed? Maybe this is why Paul would later go on in the New Testament and say, look, it can still, whatever you do, it doesn't matter what you do, work with it with all of your heart as if you were working for the Lord, not for human masters. But, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Hey? What do we have? Step back in the story. What do you have? You have an incredible garden. I mean, just imagine what this thing looks like, okay? There's no pollution, no smog, no dirty snow. It's just beautiful. There's trees and rivers and fruit. The Bible actually speaks of two specific trees in the garden, the, the tree of life and the tree of good and evil. And you have man, you have man in relationship with woman, you have God in relationship with man and the woman, you have man in relationship with God, the woman in the garden. Everybody's kind of stewarding things together. 
One New Testament theologian described the scene this way. He said, humanity was created to live in four harmonious relationships to God, others, self, and creation. Jewish writers would refer to this harmonious God-ordained web of relationships as shalom. You might have heard of that as a Jewish greeting, but it's so much more. In the early stories, the point was that the Creator loved the world He had made, and He wanted to look after it in the best possible way. To that end, He placed within His world a looking-after creature, a creature who could demonstrate to the creation who He, the Creator, really was, and who would set to work developing the creation, making it flourish and fulfill its purpose. This looking-after creature would model and embody interrelatedness, mutual, fruitful, knowing of one another, trusting of one another, loving of one another, which was God's, the Creator's intention. In one word, you had shalom. All of creation was at rest, harmonious, peaceful, whole, complete, prosperous, tranquil. Sounds pretty good. What underpinned Shalom in the Garden is the same thing that I believe can underpin Shalom in your life and your home and your work and your soul today. What permitted Shalom to exist in this, right up until this moment, is this. God had been defining for his people, his image bearers, what good was. Remember every day he would step back and he would define for them, you see this, this is good. You see this, this is good. You see this, this is good. But God who defines himself in scripture not only as love, but loving, because love by its very nature and definition requires a choice of the will. Within the garden, God also permits the free will choice for a man to define good for himself. A choice that he still gives you today. A choice to love. I would argue that today we still have the potential to bring, about, to bring about in our world, homes, and lives, shalom. See, we're supposed to reproduce and make cultures and neighborhoods and cities and art and gardens. We're supposed to do that. And God gives us a moral choice on how we're going to do it, how we're going to go forward. And, and that choice that love itself demands for love to exist, he gives them a choice, our original forebearers, how they're going to live and build their lives in this world, as image bearers of God or not. And this choice is represented by this tree in the garden, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because remember, up to now, God has been defining for us what is good. He's the one who defines and has the knowledge of good and evil, but the tree represents the choice. And the question starts to become, will these humans trust God's definition of good and evil, what is right and what is wrong? Will they bear his image, because that was what they were created to do, bear his image, testify to his glory and grandeur, or will they choose to bear their own image, seize the opportunity to divine right and wrong for themselves, and bear the image of their own glory? Will they trust God, or will they seize control from him? And the Lord God commanded them. Listen to this now. Remember, remember the scene he's displayed from. He, he says, look, he goes, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, any of it, all I've made. 
But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because when you eat from it, you're going to certainly die. Anybody know what happens here? I mean, I want to be the bearer of bad news, but they eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They make a moral decision to seize for themselves the ability to define what is good and what is evil. Has anybody ever done that? I do it all the time. See, this decision wasn't made on their own either, because I, although I think they would have made it on their own, because the story of our origin also introduces to us in this creation that is, this creation has prior to this moment already been subjected to an enemy. And the timing theologians debate, what the Bible teaches is that sometime during this period of shalom on earth, we don't know how long this was, but this period of shalom on earth, a heavenly being, one, two, created by God, decided to do much the same thing to assume the position of God himself. The prophet Isaiah, we just read a lot of his Christmas prophecies about Jesus. The prophet Isaiah tells our enemies' stories this way. He says, how have you fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn? You have been cast down to earth, you who once laid low the nations. But here's what your enemy said. Isaiah said, you said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly. I will ascend the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And this enemy of ours, the same one who today tries to get you and I with the same trap, comes on the scene, and, and the scripture says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, this is so good because you've heard this whisper in your ears too. He said to the woman, come on, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Did you know that that's the first time a question is asked in all of human experience? There had never been a question asked, at least recorded by the scripture. Before this, there was just answers. There weren't dilemmas. There was nobody to introduce a dilemma. The question was designed by this brilliant enemy of ours to start Eve on the same path he had wound up on, a path of questioning God. A path that, no doubt, once you go down it, leads from questioning God to doubting God, from doubting God to distrusting God. And once you get to distrusting God, you're only a stone's throw away from disobeying God. It's a very clever plan. It's the essence of all of our sin. All of our brokenness, all of our sin patterns follow this same path. You have a right to question God. You have a right to doubt God. You have a right to distrust God. And when you do, that leads to disobedience. Catch the tone. I love the tone of what the enemy is saying here. Eve, doesn't it strike you as strange that God has restricted you? Eve, don't you question that? I mean, really? Can't eat that tree? That's like a lot of sense. Let's talk about that, Eve. Further implication is that there's something in God that wants to deprive you of some great delight. There's so, listen, this is what the evil one wants you to think. That there's something in God's character, the implication is there's something in God's nature that makes him want to limit you. He wants to steal your joy. He wants to take away your complete freedom. God, he's this cosmic 
killjoy. There's some pleasure that can be found just over there, and he just won't let me have it. Do you ever feel that way? Maybe you were introduced to God that way. I know I was. I was introduced to God as the killjoy God, right? I wasn't really introduced to the Genesis 1 and 2 God, this incredible creation, this purposeful God, this image-bearer God, this you were given boundless opportunity God. I was introduced to God as you're a sinner that is enemy of God and you need saving. And so when I was introduced to God that way, it essentially began to teach me, well, that God is just angry at me, and that because he's angry at me, I better shape up, and I better stop screwing around. Now, maybe when you're like, this is why people like love, you know, the thought process, you talk to your friends about God, well, maybe you know, I'll accept them on my deathbed. Not now. Why? Because we have this internal thought that God's a killjoy. Why would I do that? I remember when I was a sophomore at Rutgers College in the, the dorm room of Hardenburg Hall, we had a pretty good party going on in my room, and there was something going on in my soul that said, this is not right. And I found myself in the stairwell, sitting on the stairs, crying, because I was in a fight with God, and I can remember yelling in the fire escape of Hardenburg Hall, what a crummy time to find God when you're a sophomore in college. Why? Because my understanding of God was that he was restrictive and he was just trying to keep me from pleasure and joy and fun. And, and so I, I, in a sense, I rebelled. I started to think, let me decide for myself what's fun. The woman said to the serpent, well, we can eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit, you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you'll die. Two things I never caught until studying this this week on this, okay? The first is this. Eve omits the word all from the fruit of all the trees. Remember God goes on and on about all the things they have? Look, it's all yours. All the trees, all the fruit, all the animals, it's all yours. Eve, Eve never says all anymore. She gets, begins to get drawn in, and she starts to lose sight of the boundless, limitless goodness of God, and she restates the command of God without any defense of God's goodness. She could have said, and by the way, I, I believe that God is good, and he, he only seeks good for his own, but she doesn't. She even adds to the command in the words, or touch it. God never said that. You never said anything about touching him. Any of you ever, ever, ever raised any teenagers? Right? Have you ever heard this? You don't let me do anything? We have a regular common occurrence in my house. It's a discussion of this matter. I don't let you do anything. Could you give me the list of things that I've restricted you from? Right? Because the reality is I let you do almost everything except for the things that are going to hurt you or have the potential to hurt you. But Eve goes down the same line. Oh, we can't even touch it. Well, God never said that. But she's beginning to feel restrictions. And guess what we don't like? Restriction. The enemy gets her to a place where she feels like she's in bondage. That that there are delights from which she's being prevented, that, that she's being restricted by God from something that's desirable and wonderful and satisfying and pleasurable. And so she's beginning to think that God is kind of this harsh killjoy who shows up just to make her miserable. And she goes, yeah, we can't even touch it. So now he kind of has her. 
You're... You certainly won't die. See, now it's moved from question to just an outright lie. You're not going to die. The serpent said to the woman, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And there you have it. This is our problem. This is, our, this is from whence we come. This is the essence and origin of all of our sin. It is the beginning of the breaking of shalom. This is how it unwinds and it unravels and comes all the way down into the mess in your living room. You can be like God. You can determine for yourself what, who is he to tell you what to do. You can be like him. You can decide what's good and evil. You can know for yourself. So check this out now. This is so interesting. See, when, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was three things, was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. See, your enemy, because the enemy still works in this fallen world, he does the same thing. His schemes are always the same. He gets you to question God. He gets you to feel that God is restrictive and harsh. And then he tempts you with the same three things. Eve saw the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom. New Testament writer John, several thousand years later, put it this way. Everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, ooh, that's good for food. The lust of the eyes, oh, that's pretty attractive. And the pride of life, desirable for gaining wisdom. Well, if I had that, if I achieved that, if I own that, that's my title. Comes not from the Father, but from the world. This is fascinating, right? Remember Jesus, he, he comes now several thousand years later, and Jesus shows up on the scene. The Bible refers to Jesus as the second Adam. Jesus, this second Adam, is taken out into the desert, and he is tempted. Anybody remember how many temptations he had? Three. You know what they were? The same exact thing. Hungry Jesus, why don't you turn that bread into a rock into bread? Why don't you throw yourself down, Jesus, and everybody will hear about how amazing you are. He gets caught up with the same thing, but he does not, the second Adam does not fall prey to it. But back to Genesis, our story is unfolding. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. They had been living naked, never even thought anything about it before. They realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together, and they made coverings for themselves. And Shalom is gone. Immediately, you have the dual results of, of, of sin, shame and blame. Suddenly, they realize they're naked, they're vulnerable, they have something to hide, they cannot trust one another's hearts or thoughts or motives, they can no longer live before one another, free of fear, free of judgment, they need to cover up, they need to hide who they really are, they pretend, need to pretend to be something that they aren't, they hide from one another, but that's not good enough because sin goes even deeper. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? I mean, I mean, you imagine part of the Lord? Where are you? He used to run there, Greek. And he answered, I, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. 
And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? First comes shame, then comes blame. The man said, it's that woman you gave me. That woman you put here with me. She gave me some of the fruit from the tree, and I ate it. See, can I just tell you, one of the things the Lord has been working on me, a spiritual discipline in my life, is trying to feel your flesh, okay? Because as you feel it, you start to realize how powerful it is and how controlling it is in your life. And so one of the things that the Lord has been teaching me a lot about lately, which I really despise, is uh, blame. I, I mean, I, blame comes so easy. I love to blame. Can I be quite honest with you? I am literally responsible for nothing wrong that I have ever done. Nothing. Everything I've ever done was not my fault. Joan's fault, kids' fault, elders' fault, Renee's fault. I could go around the room, but it's not me. It just comes and flows naturally right out of me, right? Blame, shame, from shalom to shame, blessing to blame. This is our story. Do you want to know why you do what you do? This is why. Why are things the way they are? Why do I do what I do? Why does he do that? Why does she do that? Why can't we get along? Why is there so much violence and anger and war and misery? I know it sounds all religious and old school, but maybe I can help you understand it a bit more. The reason is this word sin. Humanity walks away from shalom, from the vocation of living as a God's image bearers, and in doing so, this relationship, this four-way relationship with humanity and creation and God and ourselves and one another, it all gets distorted. Everything begins to get thrown out of balance. We get out of sync with God's purposes for our lives. One theologian I read this week, he gives a pretty helpful definition of sin. It's not perfect, but he called sin the culpable disturbance of shalom. Sin is disruption of the created harmony and then the continued resistance to the restoration, the divine restoration of that harmony. God hates sin not just because it violates his law, but because it violates shalom. It breaks peace. It interferes with the way things were to be. Culpable disturbance of shalom. Anybody ever been culpable of disturbing some shalom at home? Culpable disturbance of shalom suggests that sin is not original. It wasn't meant to be this way. It disrupts something good and harmonious. It's an intruder. And it all originates from the same place and the same temptations, the desire to be God, to define for ourselves good and evil. And it all ends up in the same place, shame and blame. You're going to see it over the next few weeks as we go through our stories, because they're all of our stories. It, it just kind of unravels into anger and rage and lies and malice and murder and war. It all has root in the same place. It's at the heart of our core issue. The question is, who are you going to allow to define for you what good and evil is? That's what, in this disjointed sermon, I'm, I'm closing with asking you to think about. I want you to wrestle honestly with this week, who gets to determine for you good and evil? Now, I know you're in church, and most of you are church people, so I know you're going to go, well, God, God determines for me what's good and evil. I know you want that to be true, but let me make it more personal. I'm like, can I push buttons? 
I'll make it more personal. Who gets to determine if you stay in a marriage that you're not happy with? Who gets to determine if you have to keep loving somebody that's quite unlovely? I think the whole thing is kind of fascinating. I mean, you keep asking these questions. Who gets to determine gender roles? Do, do I get to determine that? I mean, some of them are defined for me, right? Like breaking news. God has decided I am never going to bear a child. This seems quite unfair to me. Actually, I think it seems more unfair to my wife than to me. Um, see, God very clearly has already determined that one. I don't have much say there, but these these other areas. Who gets to determine that for you? Who determines the boundaries of your sexuality? Who, who determines who you marry? Who determines who you sleep with? Now remember, if you feel your flesh, I want you to understand. I know what it's saying to you. You're going to see it all over the place. Oh, that God is so restrictive. He's just not good. He's not kind. He's not caring like you are. See, you're so much more caring than God. Did you know that? You care about people so much more than God does. You are so much more trustworthy in your decision-making process than God is. At least that's how we live often. Who gets to determine for you how you spend your money? How you raise your kids, what you set before your eyes, what words come out of your mouth, how you control your tongue. The core question your enemy wants you to question is the goodness of God. Is he good? Can I trust him? Even when it means that it might feel restrictive, can I trust him? Is he good? Is he right? This is the great question of life. Who gets to be God? Who gets to determine good and evil? And over the coming weeks, we're going to see how this plays out. But, but here's one thing. I'm going to close with this. In my world, when I choose to determine good and evil, when I get to determine, choose good and evil, here's the deal. If you, like, uh, I'm a pretty good person, right? Like, I'm a pastor. I don't want you all to leave, so I'm not that bad a person. But... When somebody crosses me, ticks me off, ditches me, betrays me, offends me, you know, I mean, you mess with my kids, give me the finger on Route 80. Um, you know, when somebody does that to me, there's something happens. One of two things happens. Uh, the first is, like, I'm going to marginalize you, and I'm going, to, I'm going to put you off to the side, and I'm going to discount you, and we're done. You're dead. Get it? We're done. Okay? Or the second is, you'll wish that I had said that we were done, because the second is, I'm going to get even. I'm going to get you. See, God's not like that. Thank God. See, God's always bent on this restoration of shalom thing. He's always bent on bringing it back. And so, like, if I had given to the created order all everything, and you did this to me, you'd be in big trouble.
But God doesn't give up and walk away. Instead, the Bible says this. It says, the Lord God made garments out of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. The Lord God comes, and the Lord God says, I'm now going to clothe you. He doesn't leave them. He provides for them a covering of their sin. It's this beautiful forward-looking thing. You realize there was no death until there was sin. Once there was sin, immediately something dies, a sacrificial animal, but it's also a concept of their inability to pay and cover their own sins. It is God who, in an incredibly beautiful glimpse of Jesus, who would ultimately pay the price and cover their sins, he, he gives us the ability to return to shalom with God, with one another. And as the band comes up, the second thing God did was this, and I was thinking about my friend Dave this week, 48, 49, 50 years old, left two kids behind. I, my first question was, did he smoke? And somebody said, yeah, when he was a young kid, he smoked. And I thought to myself, what kind of world do we live in where there are, you know, and I, look, I don't email, I, I know we're all responsible for our decisions, but it's still crazy to me that we live in a world where companies for profit are pumping out cigarettes to children around the world. Like, what are we doing? Right? But then there was this other concept that came to me about God. This is the second thing I want to show you as we close. The Lord God, in the conclusion of this story, said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil, determining for himself good and evil. He actually now knows evil because he feels it. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat it and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way back to the tree of life. And I know, I know, I know that the scripture teaches that the penalty of sin is death. But can I also tell you that this merciful God says, now that this has happened to the people I love, the last thing I will ever let them do is live eternally like this. The last thing I will ever let them do is live eternally like this. I thought about my friend this week and thought to myself, the last thing God is ever going to do is let him live eternally like this. That's our story. We choose to be image bearers of one kingdom or another. May you know the real king. Let's stand and close the song.